everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Michael Janako is a nationally recognized expert on police accountability and reform. He was the chief attorney of the Office of Independent Review for Los Angeles County. And I've gotten to know him recently because he is the independent police auditor of the city of Davis, where I reside. Welcome to the show, Michael Janako. Thank you, David. It's great to be uh, be with you. So I think the most important question that people will have is to wonder what you actually do. Yeah, it's a question I often ask myself and how I got into this business, but um, essentially what my uh, overarching uh, responsibilities are is to provide a level of outside um, review uh, and independent accountability to police practices. And that can take its shape in many different ways, but essentially um, consistent with uh, former President Obama's 21st century policing principles, um, the idea is to provide a level of outside oversight and engagement uh, so that uh, policing, which has traditionally been a very closed uh, system, is now subject to uh, outside voices and influence in a productive and helpful way with the idea of ensuring that police agencies are accountable to their communities, as well as uh, uh, are adopting progressive policing principles that are consistent with the uh, desires of their communities. And can you explain what the OIR group is and what they do? Yes, the OIR group is a is a team of police practice professionals. Um, all of them have had uh, civilian oversight experience. Um, most of them have been in the business with me uh, for at least a decade or longer. Um, and it's an, But it's an adaptable and flexible group in which at times, depending on the needs of the project, we will bring in others who have different levels of expertise. For example, yesterday, uh, the Santa Clara County Board of Supervisors agreed to contract with us to provide oversight to their sheriff's office, which is a, a brand new um, project. And in order to fulfill the needs of that project, we'll be bringing on um, nurses, psychologists, psychiatrists, and others because a key component of our oversight there will be to evaluate uh, the effectiveness of the health system in their jails. 
Oh, interesting. Um, so is that something different for you guys? It's um, something that we had been doing uh, in L.A. County, have done a little bit of it in other counties that have jails. So it wouldn't be, and we have also done extensive work with the prison systems uh, system in California. But the sort of uh, intense review of uh, inmate death through um, a medical lens is certainly something that um, this project will provide us an opportunity to be uh, engaged in a different and perhaps a more intense way. So overall, how long have you been doing this? Hmm. I've been doing uh, oversight uh, since 2001, and uh, but before that, I was involved in police misconduct in my role as a federal prosecutor of uh, police officers and other officials uh, for the U.S. Department of Justice, first in the Civil Rights Division and then in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles, and did that uh, beginning in 1986. And how did you get into this area in the first place? Um, I think it probably went back to when I uh, graduated from law school and clerked for a judge who was on the Ninth Circuit he was the first um, Asian American judge appointed to that to that court, and um, very active in civil rights before he became a judge. Um, at that time, I was looking for a job after I was after I left Judge Tang and um, had an opportunity to work in the civil rights division in Washington. Um, the, the the apprehension I had was that. At the time, it was under the Reagan administration, and they weren't doing a whole lot in civil rights enforcement. And the judge convinced me that, if any time, that's the time when people of goodwill uh, needed to step up and, and take appointments so that um, so that the division could be energized by people uh, with the right mindset and the right approach. So I took the job, uh, did work in the voting section for a couple of years, and then I ended up um, investigating and prosecuting police officers and D- DAs and judges and others who committed criminal civil rights violations. So I'm curious, was your experience with the Reagan administration as you feared, or did it turn out better? It was one of the reasons I left the voting section is is for that concern. The voting section was very um, politically charged in the, in the sense that um, the work that was being done could have impacted uh, people in power. Um, fortunately, I was, uh, and it was just coincidental, I was assigned, assigned cases that didn't have that political tinge to them, and we, uh, my cases were never interrupted by political influence, but I knew other, other attorneys and colleagues who were, so that's one of the reasons I transferred over the criminal section. And, and when did you get to L.A.? I got to LA in 1994 um, and uh, and worked uh, doing the same kind of work for another seven years. So you got there right after Rodney King and all of that. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I was trying a case involving uh, an LAPD officer for excessive force at the same time as the state trial of Rodney King was going on. Um, and just before... Just before that verdict came down, we were able to con- uh, convince a jury to convict this LAPD officer for using excessive force on an undocumented alien. Interesting. Uh, how, how did that 
case, obviously that case wasn't nearly as uh, high profile as Rodney King, but how did that compare? Yeah, it, uh, it's interesting because we didn't have a video, uh, uh, which is probably the reason it didn't receive the same level of attention as Rodney King did. Um, but this case involved the uh, use of a baton uh, uh, on the back and head area of an undocumented juvenile immigrant. And, um, and, and so we had to rely on good old fashioned eyewitness testimony, but the testimony from the witnesses, um, who, who lived in the barrio in which this case occurred, uh, were powerful and, um, and outweighed the very conflicting testimony of the officer and his partner. How has video um, changed the field of policing? It's a serious and significant game changer. I would say mostly to the good. I think that when it first uh, became um, became in use, um, and maybe Rodney King is maybe the best example of that, there was an over-reliance on video, and I think prosecutors were too confident uh, in the impact of video. And the Rodney, Rodney King case is a good example of, of how um, you can use uh, video to tell two different stories. Um, but certainly on a day-to-day basis, the, um, with, particularly with the advent of body-worn cameras, it has really changed uh, the world of policing and really changed my world um, in mostly a favorable way. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, you brought up the point about overconfidence in the video, and I was I was in high school still when Rodney King happened, but I was in college by the time the first trial occurred. And I remember watching a brief portion of the trial, and they were going through the video blow by blow, and I'm like, and they're going to quit these guys. And, and sure enough, they did. Yeah. Um, because there were a lot of, yeah, there were a lot of mistakes there, but over-reliance and overconfidence on the video, um, David, was certainly a part of that. Um, I think that the uh, DA's office felt that all they needed to do was put the video on and their case could, they could then rest. And we saw how, and you saw how uh, that all unraveled in a not very helpful way for the prosecution once the defense case. Uh, was put on. And you think we've learned from that? Well, I hope we've learned from that. I, I do know that um, there are still times, I think, when prosecutors uh, rely too heavily on the video and, and, and fail to recognize that, um, that you need to continue to develop your case the old-fashioned way, which is, you know, interviewing witnesses, locking potential defense witnesses in, um, ensuring that all of that information is thoroughly vetted before you get to trial, so there are no surprises. And uh, quite frankly, at least in the police world, um, many, many prosecutors who are entrusted with reviewing uh, police uh, allegations of police misconduct, uh, officer-involved shootings, simply don't have the training or the experience to really put a, put a case together in the way you need to, in part because... Um, it's quite a um, esoteric field, and um, there isn't a lot of training, unfortunately, provided to prosecutors on how to review and how to evaluate. And then, on cases which are on the few cases that end up being filed, how to prosecute them. And 
do you feel like part of the problem is that some of the prosecutors are going about it half-heartedly? I think that certainly uh, uh, the community perspective is that um, prosecutors, because they rely on local law enforcement to bring them their cases, in, in all their other cases, um, certainly develop a connectivity and a, a working relationship and particularly as the jurisdiction gets smaller, often a social relationship uh, with the police officers who are bringing them cases. And I do think that that inevitable connection is either uh, can either consciously or subconsciously impact uh, that level of independence and objectivity that you'd like to see by a reviewing body. Um, and and I, I know that prosecutors do say they do their best to try and uh, ensure that there is an objective, uh, there is a level of object, objectivity and distance, but I'm not even sure how it could be done, even if uh, there was a will to do it. How have you seen this field change over the time you've been working in it? I think that um, the field has changed in um, in several ways. One is that I do think that uh, oversight is growing, although. If you look at uh, you know the, the, the thousands of police agencies throughout the United States in our sort of balkanized world of policing, uh, that the great majority of police agencies ha- have no oversight at all. Um, but it's a growing it's a growing area, and I think, for example, the 50 largest cities, except with maybe the exception of Phoenix and a handful other. Most uh, cities do have some level of oversight, most of the major cities, and I think that's changing. I do think also the focus is changing a little bit um, with regard to um, oversight's role. I do think there's more acceptance by progressive police agencies recognizing the importance of oversight's role. And I do think that the communities are also changing with regard to the way in which they um expect the relationship of their police agency to be. Um, If you go back 50, 60 years, I think that the majority, great, great majority of of American residents would say that they deferred uh, to the decision-making of the head of their police agency in in almost total way. And, And I think that was also true with elected officials and city managers, a huge deference um, to decision making um, by police chiefs and allowing all of the decisions on policy and practice and and even the way in which a public safety function was performed to be something entirely at the um, at the deference of the of the chief of police I, that has really changed I think and continues to change with communities recognizing and and insisting really that there should be a level of engagement and that they and their elected officials, as well as their city leadership, should have more of a role, more of a say uh, about accountability, as well as maybe most more importantly, the way in which police officers perform their public safety function in our country. That is really, I think, uh, probably the most significant change I've seen over the years. Well, it is interesting. I I have the perspective of... um, kind of two points in time, uh, both in my hometown of, of Davis. One, in 2006, um, the idea of police oversight was 
proposed for the first time and there was a lot of opposition to it. It ended up getting implemented in kind of a compromise fashion. Then 11 years later, um, when your predecessor here uh, left, uh, there was kind of a re-examination of what the structure and the role was going to be. There was no controversy. Um, nobody spoke out against it. The union didn't have any problem with it. What was put into place was something much stronger, and yet it went through without a hitch. I mean, it was like night and day. Yeah, I think your experience is 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 um, a, a a an example of of what I have seen, particularly in California, which is often you know ahead of the rest of the country with regard to the concept of of some level of oversight and and also checking in to ensure the degree possible. And there are certainly challenges and obstacles in our state laws to this, but uh, to the degree possible that that oversight is effective and transparent. Um, you know, and I, I was extremely pleased um, in my role as auditor that I was able to, for example, uh, perform that transparency role in, in, uh, in getting the city to agree to release um, the initial work that I've done on the six initial complaints that I've taken. And I, I think that 20 years ago, that would have been unheard of. And um, you know, while it isn't the first time a city has done that, it's one of the few first times that a city has done that. And I think it, it, it does show um, how, how, um, how things have changed. And there's also a mindset difference. Um, you know, you had mentioned, you know, uh, when you started, there was a lot of deference to the chief of police. When I started uh, going to trials, there was a lot of deference to the word of police officers. So if a police officer testified, the jury was going to believe the police officer. And what I've seen over the last few years is much more skepticism by the jury themselves. And they look at the statements and they don't accept them on face value. It's a huge sea change. Yes, I think your experience and in, in, in your good work in court watching um, is a testament to, to that change. I, I do think that um, these days, and, and prosecutors and police officers alike have told me this, that if there is no, if there's an interview and there's no recording of that interview, um, the public or the jurors are going to look at that uh, confession, that admission with skepticism. If there's an event and it's not captured on body cameras, even though the officers had them at their disposal, the failure to turn them on is going to be um, also uh, a strong consideration in evaluating the credulity of the officer. So. I do agree with you that um, that uh, consistent with uh, what the jury instructions say a juror should do, which is to treat every witness, uh, you know, the same. I think that is happening, and I do think that the uh, almost automatic deference that had been in the past paid to police officers' testimony is a thing of the past. So you mentioned body cameras, and um, you know that's been uh, a relatively new phenomenon. What's your thought on them? Uh, do you like them um, overall? So uh, for for purposes of an independent police auditor, you couldn't have anything better. Um, before the advent of body cameras, and even in and in jurisdictions that students still do not um, really have them. 
we have to rely on, uh, you know, the, the trying to make a credibility determination between what a, uh, what the civilian might say and what the police officer might say. And it's almost always, oftentimes, a he said, she said. Sometimes you'll have corroborative evidence, but often you won't. Um, now, with the, uh, with the body cameras, particularly with regard to um, police-civilian encounters, uh, and I'm talking about traffic stops or ped stops, you know, the, uh, the instruction is that, that officers are to um, record those, uh, those engagements. And when they do, an auditor certainly has a very good record of, uh, of what really happened because it's recorded. Um, and there's both audio and pretty good quality video that's getting better all the time. Um, I would say, you know, the unintended consequence, and I don't know there's getting around it, uh, uh, about body cameras is uh, the fact that I think um, when an officer is carrying a recording device around with her or him, it can inhibit the kind of... Um, a positive relationship building that, that otherwise might occur. I do think that um, many individuals are off-put uh, when they realize that, you know, even a casual conversation or engagement with an officer may or may not be recorded. And, that, and maybe there's a way to get around it by disengaging for those casual contexts. But the mere outfitting of the body camera, I do think, can be inhibiting as far as developing you know, productive relationships between kids in the park and the officer and things like that. So I do think that that is a collateral consequence of them, but overall I think they are really a positive thing. And do you see most body cameras exonerating the police or is it more mixed? Uh, I think that... Um, that when there is a complaint, um, I would say probably the majority of the time, um, the body camera footage does not uh, prove um, a violation of policy. Although that, that being said, there are oftentimes things that are captured in the body camera where the performance is not great and, and needs corrective action. Um, and, and, and I do think that uh, the wealth of information being captured on body camera provides effective first level and second level supervisors a wealth of information upon which they can um, evaluate officer behavior and improve officer behavior before things uh, go off the rails, if you will. One thing I noticed, I have a, a dash cam in my car. And so I'm recording everything and it's come in handy on a number of occasions. But one thing I've noticed is, you know, something happens, I'll often, you know, pull out the card and take it to my computer and watch what happened. And almost invariably what happened unfolded very differently from how I experienced it the first time. Uh, it's really interesting because you think, oh, you're observant, you see what you see, and then you watch it on video, you're like, man, I missed that, I missed that, oh, I didn't see that. It's amazing. It, it really is. It's, a, it's an amazing phenomena. I do think that um, that often explains um, a few things, which is why uh, the civilian, you know, in reporting what happened may have missed things. May, and the other thing is that 
Uh, there may have been events that preceded the incident that provided a, maybe not a justification, but a further explanation for the way in which the officer approached the vehicle, for example. So, yeah, I, I, you know, you, the, the phenomena that you describe is why um, I am very adamant uh, about uh, in cases involving force and in cases involving allegations of misconduct that uh, the police officer not be afforded the opportunity to view the video before providing a pure statement because the video camera is not, is not, um, we have that. What we want is the state of mind from the officer as he or she remembers it, not to be contaminated with, <laughs> with the extra information that is provided upon preview of, of the body camera footage. And, and uh, so that's one of the reasons that you want to um, get that pure statement first um, before you allow the officer the opportunity to view the body camera. It's really interesting you bring that up. So that was when uh, Davis was going to have body cameras for the first time. I want to say like 2015 or so. I got into it with the police chief at the time, and I said, hey, you know, the ACLU's policy is they not look at the body camera first, and he insisted that it was better to allow them to watch the body camera because then they uh, create much better reports. And he said, beside the uh, police union is not going to buy into uh, that role. And so I, I, you know, I wanted to get the body cameras uh, as part of the policy. So I gave up on that fight, but then I returned to it a couple of years later and we ended up getting the policy changed. But it, it was a interesting thing where the first time we proposed it, it was a no-go. The second time, they're like, oh, okay, we'll do it. Yeah, I think that it takes sometimes uh, a little bit of uh, of engagement to, to get people to come around. But clearly, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's consistent with, uh, with traditional investigative practices not to do that. So if, you know, if you... <laughs> are going to be interviewing a bank teller about a, a bank robbery, you don't show the bank teller the video of the event before you interview the teller. That just doesn't make sense. And, and so I'm glad to see that, you know, more agencies are recognizing that in order to be consistent with basic investigative practices, get the peer statement and then, you know, afford the officer at some point the opportunity to review it, but not until you get a full, complete peer statement. So I'm sure some, Listening, want to know uh, what are some of the most memorable cases that you've reviewed? Um, in my work, in my role throughout the, in my past, on my past experience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, you know, there have been a, a number of um, memorable events that I've been able to to review as, as auditors in various jurisdictions. Um, you know, one of the um, one of the incidents that we were asked to, to look at, not only from a systemic review perspective and from an auditing perspective, but we were actually asked to conduct the internal affairs investigation uh, of the incident involving Kelly Thomas, who was a homeless man who was uh, who was killed at the hands of uh, Fullerton police officers uh, a few years ago um, and uh, died from those from that force. And we actually conducted the internal affairs investigation as well as did a systemic review of the police department 
and came up with a number of recommendations intended to improve the department um, with regard to the way in which they teach taught officers on force, as well as a host of other issues. Um, you know, in the, in the course of, of this work, um, our team has reviewed close to 600 shootings. And so every one of them present um, uh, tragic, unfortunately tragic results to, to, to family members of, of those who were shot. Um, those who survived, um, obviously tragic uh, implications for them. And, and each one of them, um, in our view, provides an opportunity for accountability as well as um, a learning experience and getting better on, on rules of engagement. And we um, have been fortunate that some agencies have taken, uh, taken our recommendations to heed. And I think that, um, you know, you're never going to get to zero, but I think that kind of level of review uh, from outside individuals um, better prepares the agency for the next similar challenge. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up Kelly Thomas. Obviously, that um, that's probably one of the more high-profile cases, and that was kind of an early police shooting case, pre-Ferguson, uh, if I'm not mistaken. It was. It happened before the Ferguson incident, um, and it actually wasn't a shooting, David. It was um, You're right. Uh, the use of batons and tasers and that's brute right. force that resulted in the death of Kelly Thomas. But but it was an in-custody death and considered a critical incident and certainly uh, turned um, turned that city upside down for a couple of years as they dealt with its aftermath. And, and what did you guys ultimately rule on that? It was kind of mixed, right? <laughs> well, um, the, 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 here we go again. So the Orange County District Attorney filed charges against three of the officers and um, the jury in, in not too long a fashion, um, two were tried in one trial, came back with a not guilty verdict. Um, and, you know, uh, that may say something about um, about, the you know, the level of preparation by the Orange County District Attorney's Office in that case. But um, while I can't really speak to um, the results of the internal affairs investigation, although I do think that it would be subject to a uh, a, a release of that information should somebody want to under the new transparency law. Um, I don't think it's been released yet, but I, all I can say is that the officers who were involved in the use of force are no longer working for the Fullerton Police Department as a result of that administrative investigation. Yeah, interesting. Um, when the city of Davis was looking to hire an interim police auditor, um, one of the council members, I think it was the mayor at the time, asked, hey, um, do you think this guy would be okay, uh, this guy being you? Um, and and so I pulled up that case and read the report, and it seemed pretty balanced. I, you know, I've, I've been around long enough to be able to read a report, and I, I can tell the difference between, you know, one that whitewashes the officer, one that immediately you know, buries the officer versus one that kind of carefully weighs everything. And and the public report uh, that they put out that I read was pretty balanced. Um, you know, it looked like you were critical of some things, uh, less critical of other things. It seemed reasonable. Well, I think that, you know, um, there are many things, in my experience, there are many things that police agencies get right. 
there are other things that they don't get right. And I think that um, uh, in order to, to be objective, you have to credit uh, credit the ones in which they perform consistent with expectations, but also be willing and able to criticize those times in which they don't. Um, and, and, um, and I think that the curious thing about oversight is that my experience, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm doing my job when both sides of, of the equation are a little bit um, happy with me and also a little bit upset with me. I think that means that I'm doing my work. <laughs> well, there's certain things you can live with and certain things that you can't, um, having been on the other side of things. And I, I've definitely uh, seen reports um, generally by agencies rather than by police auditors or independent review that you just go, oh, come on. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, there, um, there have been times that I've seen reports, uh, you know, within an agency, but also at times in which they've engaged an outside consultant for litigation purposes, <laughs> in which surprisingly, uh, the reporter or the, the individual assigned with the report finds absolutely nothing wrong with the with the force or or, or the uh, the performance of the uh, of the involved officers. So, is there something that you consider kind of your greatest accomplishment, or that you're most proud of, or the work that you could point to? You know, I do think that um, uh, when I am um, when I am most pleased with the result is is twofold. One is when we're able to release a report. That would that allows the public to get a window into the world of policing that has been traditionally closed, in part for legitimate reasons. Investigations, you know, need to be confidential for purposes of protecting the accused that are not charged and other reasons. But um, when it is appropriate, uh, when we're talking about police conduct, I'm not sure those same privacy protections need to apply. In Florida, they don't have any such protections, and they seem to be doing fine with their policing. Um, but I do think that uh, finding ways to report out uh, uh, events uh, in an unvarnished way so that the public can themselves evaluate uh, how their agency is doing, I think, is, is really uh, uh, one of the things I'm proudest of being able to do and continue to push on. Now, the second is when a recommendation is made by us that through our power of persuasion, and we almost never have the authority to get uh, an agency to change, but by our power of persuasion, uh, we're able to convince the chief of police <clears throat> or our city leadership to make changes. Do you find it difficult to get agencies to make changes? Do you find it difficult to get agencies to hold officers accountable? Um <laughs> There's an old adage that says that police, um, the only thing that police uh, are less happy with, uh, they're not happy with the status quo. The only thing they're less happy with, with would be any kind of change to the status quo. So I do think that, you know, as, as with many, uh, many organizations, change can be difficult. Um, and I, I do think um, that even when there is a will, there's often not a way. And by that, I mean, um, in my experience with larger agencies like City of New York, City of Chicago, Los Angeles County, 
um, is that those very large agencies have a very difficult time turning the corner or moving the battleship in a different direction, merely because of the size of the agency and the bureaucracy that goes into the training and, and, you know, and policy development and the number of hoops that need to be, um, be gone through in order to, to effectuate ch uh, lasting change. Um, with smaller agencies, I, um, I've learned that it's, that they're more nimble because the fact they're smaller. So in my experience, if we can get the chief of police and, and the chief's leadership or the city manager or combination of both to agree that this is the way it should go, it's a lot easier to turn it around. The training component becomes much more doable because you only got, you know, 100, 200 officers to train instead of 8,000, like, you know, 15,000, 50,000 in New York City. Um, so, um, so, so, yeah, I, I, I think it depends on the agency, but, um, but the smaller agencies actually are, are, are um, better adapted, adaptable to change than the larger ones, ironically. And speaking of change, changes in the state law, uh, are we moving in the right direction? I think that, um, it's unfortunate. Uh, that it's requiring a state legislation to make some of these changes, but I think a necessary uh, component of of the equation. Um, I do think that, for example, the transparency law has really um, cracked open uh, a vault that's been closed for over 50 years uh, of information. And while I do think that there have been growing pains and challenges in pumping that information out, I do think that it is... Um, it is the beginning of, of a new advent of transparency that we'll see as a result of that state law. Um, and guess what? Uh, you know, the sun still comes up in the morning and the sky hasn't fallen down despite, you know, all of the concerns that were raised by the opponents uh, as the legislation was being proposed. Well, I think we will close then on a high note. Um, thank, all right. Thank you so much for being on the show. All right, David, thank you for your interest and your continued interest in this area. And uh, I look forward to uh, continuing to, uh, to uh, hear from you and, and your reporting of the work that we're doing in Davis and elsewhere. Thank you. So that was Michael Janaco on Everyday Injustice, our weekly podcast here at the Davis Vanguard. I'm your host, David Greenwald. We will be back again next week with more episodes from Everyday Injustice. Thank you. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.